Okay, we're going to talk about enlightenment. Even though when you hear enlightenment, if you study a little history, you know who you're talking about the uh, 18th century. But it's all built on Greek wisdom. Um, and really all of our uh, science today, all of our uh, academic disciplines, really it's built on the foundations of Greek thinking and Greek um, Greek knowledge, Greek methodology, the scientific method. So we're going to talk a little bit about enlightenment. It sounds like illumination. And as you can see from the uh, title, we're talking about darkness. So Rabbi Feigenbaum actually gave us a good introduction because we're going to be building on a number of the things that he mentioned. We're going to see the sources inside and then go beyond some of the ideas that he gave you. So the opening source is a medrash on the Arba Galuyos. Four, there were four exiles that uh, um, were inflicted upon the Jewish people, and they are alluded to already in the first sukim of Sefer Bracious. Sefer Bracious opens, V'ha'aretz ha'isa tohu v'avohu v'choshech al tahom. And Chazal view that as four different exiles. And it, the, uh, all right, um, Tohu is Babylonia, Vohu is Persia, and then we have in the source, Choshech, Zegolus Yavan. Greece is called the exile of darkness. Why would, was it called exile of darkness? Continues the Medrash. Shehechshicha Einehem Shel Yisrael Begizerotehem. They darkened the eyes of the Jewish people with their decrees. So there's the idea of darkness. Choshech. And right away, again, with Greece providing us with all of the enlightenment and wisdom that we have, it's a little strange that they're called darkness, and we're going to see why. But look at what kind of decrees we're talking about. Shehaisa Omeret Lahem, they told the Jewish people, they required the Jews, Kitvu lachem al keren hashor. Engrave on the horn of an ox, of, of a bull. Ein lachem chelek be'elokei Yisrael. You have no portion in the God of Israel. We're not going to talk about what the significance of writing it on the horn of a bull is, but we're going to talk about the significance of the gzeira and the oxymoron. There's an internal contradiction here, which proves that the Greeks were not atheists. They didn't say there's no God. They didn't have us write no God. They had us write, Ein lachem chelek, you have no portion, Be'elokei Israel, in the God of Israel. So what, what does that mean? What kind of decree is that? Okay, that's one of the things that we're going to have to talk about. What, what, were, what was their agenda there? Another Rambam, source number two, very unique to the Rambam in Yad HaChazaka, which is a halachic work, gives us a history lesson and the introduction to Hilfos Hanukkah. He does it in a couple of places, and whenever there's a history lesson, you've got to understand that the history lesson must be very relevant to the halachic discussion. So, follow me in the English if you're having trouble with the Hebrew. Ubitlu datam. So far, so good. 
I mean, so far, so good in the sense we can understand it. All right? they, they, they didn't want us to be involved in Torah and Mitzvot. And then we have the line that Rabbi Feigenbaum focused on, and we're going to elaborate on it. Upashtu yodom bimamonam ubivnosehem. Okay, you already heard an intro from that. V'nichnesu leheichal. Heichal is the inner sanctum of the temple. Upartsu bopratzos v'timu hataharos. When I read this, I always think of a game that the little kids play. But they have tohar oil. Gotcha! They touched it. Finished. That's that's what they did. And again, the Maral spent talks at length. All the kind of, why didn't they just destroy it? What, 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 they they were what, That's what's the big deal? And God saved us with miracles. So we're going to talk about this idea of Pashto Yadam Bimamonam Ubibnosayim, which you already had an insight to. And Timu Hataharos, why were they metame the oil? Again, Rabbi Feigemam touched on that. And we're going to elaborate on that. Continues, I'm sorry, now the Gomorrah. And we'll see the Gemara, and then we'll go back to the Rambam's halacha. Torah Rabbanon, famous Gemara. If you studied anything about Hanukkah, this is what you got to have studied. Ner mitzvah Hanukkah. What's the mitzvah Hanukkah? Ner ish ubeso. The mitzvah, the mitzvah is one candle for every family. Ish ubeso, a person in his home. So it's a mitzvah on the home. Mahadrin ner lekol you want to upgrade? You guys know what Mahadran is. You want to upgrade? So you have one candle for each person in the home. The Mahadran min Mahadran. Oh, we have our glot kosher. Super duper. Beit Shammai Omrim. Whether you go eight to one, one to eight, etc. So I hope everybody hears this and is that you don't appreciate how significant this is. Because you guys are used to, yeah, well, there's a hefsher. And there's a Mahadrin Heksher. You know, there's Rabbanut Mahadrin, and there's Rabbanut Mahadrin. And there... No, there is no such thing in Halacha that we legislate discrete levels of performance as a legislation. Our Mahadrins and Chumras, that's all Chumras, that's all leniencies and, and stringencies, and we're worried about this sheet. This is legislated? Levels of performance, we find this nowhere else in halacha. And this has to be amazing. Continues the Rambam, source number four, based on that Gemara. Kamaneros who madlik bechanukah. So mitzvah, the basic mitzvah, sheyek, called bayit, ubayit madlik nerechad. I want you to be tuned in to the, to this, uh, the rep- repeating concept of bayit in Hanukkah. And then the Rambam has at the towards the end of the chapter. A very, very strange phrase. Mitzvah ner Hanukkah, mitzvah chaviva hi me'od. A beloved mitzvah. 
Do we play favorites with mitzvahs? It's chaviva. This is beloved. Right? It, it, I mean, I'm going to come back to the question that anybody who has siblings, ask your parents. Who do you love best? Right? If you if you didn't if you didn't your kids are going to ask you that. We'll have to see what the right answer is. Now look at this, there's another aspect of Ner Hanukkah. We alluded to it, if you were at the Or Samech learning session that we had, it was alluded to because this uniqueness of Hanukkah makes it very different than every other mitzvah. Here's the key. This is the only mitzvah, one of only two mitzvahs, where if you have nothing to eat, and you have obviously you have nothing to eat, you have no money to buy oil for Hanukkah candles. The only way you have food for Shabbos is because of Tom Shabbos. So that basically exempts you from spending money on other mitzvahs because you have no money. Shoel o mocher Ner Hanukkah is a unique mitzvah. You have to sell the shirt off your back. To be, fulfill the mitzvah, that's not true with any other mitzvah. Mm-hmm. Let's see if we want to stop here for a minute. Yeah, okay. Um, all right, so. Let's talk a little bit now. You know, let's, let's do one more. So this is a medrash in Eicha, Malkeh v'sareba goyim, ain Torah. This is a posseg in Eicha, Malkeh v'sareba goyim, ain Torah. This is a, lamenting the fact that there was no Torah in our exile. Says the medrash, In Yom Elecha Adam, Yeshchachma bagoyim. The non-Jewish world, they have wisdom? Tami. Believe them. Dichsiv avarati chachami me'edom, utvuna me'hars esav. So they have wisdom. However, yesh Torah begoyim. But if they want to tell you there's Torah among the non-Jewish world, al-tamin, don't believe it, dechsiv malka v'sareh begoyim ain't Torah. So again, you have to know, what does it mean Torah? So I understand this to mean that the non-Jewish world tells us how to run the world. Absolutely. Wisdom, science. We don't have a monopoly on it, even though we have a quarter of the Nobel Prizes. Okay, but we don't have a monopoly on wisdom. But Torah means values. We have we have a monopoly on values. And if the non-Jewish world has values, and they do, they got them from us. That's what it means. Torah comes from us. The value system is, is uniquely Jewish. So, we let you know, one more source so we can talk about illumination. Um, no, I don't have it here. Mm, I thought I brought it. Yeah, we do. Um, let's talk about um, enlightenment. Let's talk about illumination. So, enlightenment taught us how things work. The Greeks worshipped bodies, buildings, nature, human wisdom. Where does illumination interface with enlightenment? So you can know how things work. But what you're missing is why. What you're missing is 
What's the purpose? The bodies are superficial. And here's where the conflict between Greek ideology and Jewish Torah ideology comes into play. In the, in the, in the Greek world, what we, look on, what we look at is surface. What do we observe? Scientific method is what is observable, what is measurable. If it's not observable, if it's not measurable, then we don't really think that it exists, say the Greeks. And the Jews say that no, there's something below the surface that you can't necessarily measure. There's what we call, what I call the inner dimension, which is hidden. You don't see the spiritual dimension of the human being. You only see the physical dimension of the human being. And therefore, if all you have is a scientific method, this is really what's going on in the atheistic uh, uh, evolutionary world, is that, uh, uh, to quote Richard Dawkins, does God exist or not is a scientific question. Those are his exact words. Well, the minute you say that, so you've got to use the scientific method. And that completely ignores anything that's not measurable. So that's enlightenment. But it's not very illuminating. Let's see. I'll skip one source for now. We'll come back to it. Let's see source number eight so we can talk about illumination and darkness. So this is a famous section in the Mesil Shisharim that gives you two problems when you're walking in the dark. It's very dark. You have no flashlight. You have no torch. There's no street lights. It's very dark. Two problems. Says the Mesil Shisharim. Follow me in English if you can't in the Hebrew. Hine choshek halayla, shnei minei ta'uyot efshalo she'yigram lo. O yechaseh ta'ayinat shelo yirimash elifan of klal. You don't see what's in front of you. And therefore you walk into the lamp post. O she'yita oto at she'yira amud ki'ilu hu adam. You don't walk into the lamppost in the darkness. You give shalom aleichem to the lamppost. Because you think it's a person. The Adam Kiluhu Ome came Chomriyut Vigashmiyut to Olamazeh. When we talk about the materialism of the world, the physical aspects of this world, Hinehu Choshech Halayla Leina Secha. When we try to use our intellect, our human intellect, to try to understand the material world, it's darkness. Goreim Lo If all you look at is the physicality through the eyes of the of physicality, that's darkness, and it causes two mistakes. You don't see all the pitfalls. You don't see all the lampposts and the holes you could fall into when you run your life based only on observable data. He calls the second mistake even worse. It's worse than falling into the hole. It's worse than running into the lamppost. Because, I don't, I mean, the Mesil Shashon was writing a couple of couple hundred years, a couple hundred years, a few centuries ago. But we see that right now in front of our, our, our horrified eyes. You could take something that's good and say that's evil. Take something that's evil and say that's good. That's darkness. 
ומתוך כך מתחזקים ומחזיקים מעשיהם הרואים. You justify your corrupt evil actions. שאין די שחסרו מהם ראיית האמת לראות הרעה אשר נגד פניהם, אלא נראה להם למצוא ראיות גדולות וניסיונות מוכיחים לסברותיהם. And you want to prove with proofs, with intellectual quote-unquote proofs, corrupt ideas. That's darkness. So if the Greeks worshipped the observable, they worshipped the externals, And Chazal call that darkness. Choshchu enem. That's Yavon is Choshech al penei tahom. Because you're walking around with all of the mistakes of the Mesil Shisharim. When you talk about Tuma and Tahara. So, Tuma and Tahara, you have to know Talk about what, what does it mean that something's Tameh? So, the, the reason the Greeks were able to, what, what, their, what was their motivation in being metame, the Tameh, the Tahar oil? I have here a flask of Tameh oil. And I have here a flask of Tahar oil. Can anybody tell the difference? In fact, it manifests itself in monetary laws. There's a concept, if I take a hammer and break your glass, I'm a mazik, I have to pay. If I take your tahar oil and I make it tameh, if it's truma, let's say, it becomes worthless. But the damage is unobservable. It's called nezek, hezek, she'eno nikar. You can't recognize the damage. Looks the same. The tameh oil and the tahar look exactly the same. And that was the point of the Greeks. There is no difference. If you can't observe it, it doesn't exist. So what they were doing is they were, they were coming here to make it a, 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 a statement <coughs> about the importance of the observable and the insignificance of the unobservable. And even when we talk about they went to the Hechal, the Hechal represents the inner dimension. The inner dimension, the hidden dimension, what's below the surface, what's not observable and measurable with our five senses. That's a hidden dimension. Does the human being have a hidden dimension? It's our ruchnius. It's our spirituality. So they are ready to acknowledge that there is a God. But you know where? That God is up there. What does he have to do with us? No connection between the physical and the spiritual. What goes on in the spiritual world is up there. We only operate here. And therefore... Might makes right. Strength is what we do. And morality? Morality, that's, that's not something that is measurable. Except you want to have a, a, a well-functioning society, but that's not a value system. That's not values. That's functionality. Did the Greeks respect Torah? Well, if you don't realize it, you're going to be confronted in another week or two with Asara Beteves 
And really it talks about the 8th, 9th, and 10th of Teves and the famous story of Talmai HaMelech commissioning elders to translate the Torah into Greek. They valued Torah just like they valued all other kinds of wisdom. Torah was wisdom. But it's wisdom that we view through the eyes of the human being, making it accessible, translated into Greek. What was their problem with Torah? Look at source 7. Alanisim. You're going to be saying that. Get ready tonight. Don't forget it in Shimon Esrei and in Benching. So run through it. Nisim Purkan, Guros, etc., etc. Bimei Matishel ben Yochanan. What do they want to make us forget? It doesn't say Lashicham Torah. It says Lashicham Torah Techa. God's Torah. And what else did they want to make us violate? What are Chukim? Chukim are the laws in the Torah that are not rational. The human being would never figure that out. That's their problem. Their problem is with this idea that there's some transcendent wisdom, that there's something beyond what we as human beings with our human intellect can grasp and can understand. That's the inner dimension. Where does that, rely, where does that reside in our Torah study? This is one of the things that Hanukkah is representing in our uh, matrix of Torah study. Torah Shabbat what is Torah Peh? Well, if you think carefully about it, Torah Peh, which was really, really started being actualized through human understanding, was exactly at the time of the Hanukkah story. All right, between Purim and Hanukkah, between the, the 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 Persian exile and the rebuilding of the Second Temple till the Hanukkah time, was the the last vestiges of prophecy. Prophecy, that's. Okay, you can't argue with prophecy. Now there's no more prophecy. How do we know what God wants? We have to study His Torah with a human understanding. Well, now we're getting into a bit of a gray area. Torah Shabbat Peh, there's no prophecy. It's human wisdom. It's human understanding. But what's the difference? We're realizing that we have access through our human understanding, to divine godly wisdom. But we also know that, if you, the, the Ramchal talks about this explicitly, that Torah study has impact only if it's done with proper character traits and, a, and perfection in your behavior. See, the... Uh, Bible criticism department or the Talmud department in Hebrew University studies exactly the same Torah we do. It says the Ramchal, but that has no spiritual impact because they're not studying it as divine wisdom. So we come when we come to try to understand God's Torah with our intellect, and that's all we have. Talmidei Chachamim is their human intellect, but it has to be it with a human being who a has a godlike personality, good midos. And he realizes what he's involved in. He's not involved in figuring out chemistry, which is discoverable in the physical world. He's trying to access divinely revealed wisdom. 
And again, this is where the Greeks oppose. You don't have access to that. That's up there. You don't have any any connection to that. There's an important paragraph in uh, in Rav, that Rav Hutner writes in Pachad Yitzchak Hanukkah that again highlights here the conflict and how we have to understand things. I'm going to read it to you. The will of, of Hashem, right, how does God reveal his will to us? So, of course, your first reaction would be God reveals his will through the Torah. Says Rav Hutner, God reveals his will to us in two ways. There's actually a third way that he mentions somewhere else. We're going to focus on the two ways he talks about in Hanukkah because that's what's relevant to us now. The will of Hashem is revealed to us through two systems. One is through the process of creation of the physical world. When God creates the world, he is manifesting to us his will, the laws of nature. So when you study the laws of nature, you're getting a glimpse as Roger Penrose, the physicist, wrote, uh, said in the title of his book, The Mind of God. Nature in, gives you an insight into God's will. The other, of course, is through giving of the Torah at Sinai. So we have the laws of nature and the laws of the Torah. Are they the same? There's a difference between how these two systems express God's will in this world. Think carefully, because this is very deep and it has a very very impactful uh, consequence. The laws of nature are imposed from without and reveal the will of God through forced compliance. Do you have a choice to keep the laws of nature? You go up to the 30th floor of the building and you jump. Well, are the consequences subject to free will? No. You know the, rea- you know the results. The laws of nature are the will of God that God forces upon you. No free choice. The laws of the Torah reveal God through man's freedom to choose. Due to it being imposed on man from the outside, the laws of nature are considered the external dimension in relation to the laws of Torah, where man's choice is fulfilling the will of God and emanates from within him. Here we have this idea of the externals, the observable and the measurable. That's Greek wisdom. And the laws of the Torah, which are subject to free will. What are the, what are the Greeks denying? If everything is physical, if everything is stimulus response, that's the laws of science, then you don't have free will. Says Rav Shamsh Rafal Hirsch in a very important section. Anybody who, ha- who, who has trouble, as you all should, with the mysteries of Tuma and Tahara, need to see the Shamshul and Farhush on chapter 11 in Sefer Vayikra. Where do we find Tuma? Says says, we find Tuma whenever man confronts some kind of death, whether it's real death, animal death, the laws of Nida also, really there was potential life that, that was exterminated. Why does that create Tuma? Because death shows you you have no control over the laws of nature. It's the most impactful evidence that you don't control nature. Oh, so now there's an easy, there's a very slippery slope. If I can't control the laws of nature, maybe I also can't control my instincts, which are natural. 
and I can't control my desires. And therefore, I don't really have free will. So says Hirsch, that's why when you're confronted with Tuma, you need to be isolated and realize that yes, in the physical, natural world, you don't have free will. As, as Rav Huttner points out, those laws of nature are God's will imposed upon you. Don't make a mistake. That doesn't deprive you of your free will. And here is again the conflict between Greek ideology and Jewish ideology. We have free will. We're not of, we are not victims of our environment. We're not victims of our physicality. We have control over it. And in the Greek world, we don't. In the, in the secular Greek atheistic world, I'm sorry, I shouldn't call it atheistic because the Greeks weren't atheists. They just disconnected anything that had to do with spirituality and the divine with man and his functioning. This also, I think it was also mentioned on Tuesday, the idea of universalism. That's a Greek idea. Universalism. We're all the same. Unless you're, you know, unless you're six foot nine and can, you know, and can do a, 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 an all net shot from, free, from, the, from half court. But, other, but that's all externals. It's universalism versus particularism. Judaism believes in particularism. What makes us as a nation unique? And particularism also forces you to ask, what makes you unique? Let's go back for a minute to the question that if you didn't ask your parents, your kids will ask you. Who do you love best? And any of you who asked that question probably got the same answer from your parents. We love you all the same. I assume you probably rolled your eyes and said, come on, give me a break. (laughs) Okay. So let me tell you why their answer could be correct. And when your kids ask you that, you need to know how to correctly answer it. How can we love you all the same? Because you're all unique. Every child is unique. Every child is different. And therefore, we can love you all the same because we love each of you for what's unique about you. Again, this is exactly the opposite. The the Greek ideology where we look at the surface starts, everybody's the same, now let's see on the surface how you're different. But there's a unique hidden dimension. The neshama, the personality, what makes you really unique, it's not what's on the surface. So, ner ish ubeso. It's a very unique mitzvah that the mitzvah is on the house as opposed to on the person. What is a bayit? A bayit is that 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 uh, microcosm of you and your immediate family that is unique. Every bayit is different. Every home is different. One of our problems, even in it's again, it's one of our uh, one of the problems in the Jewish world is that Greek thinking and Greek ideology has infiltrated our own thinking. Okay? Even our Torah learning is very superficial. It's very conformist. And our homes are conformist. And Hanukkah is the holiday where, no, it's a house, 
And you got to go to the inner dimension and what makes you unique. And therefore, mitzvah chaviva ma'od. And therefore, this is my understanding of the mysterious idea of legislated levels of compliance that does not exist in any other mitzvah. The recognition that there are people are different. And that for some people, this is the way to fulfill the mitzvah. And for other people, there's a different different level and a third level. Legislated recognition that we're not all the same. Now, nowadays, everybody, because of the importance of Hanukkah, whatever the, the standard custom is, that everybody keeps the Mahadrim in a Mahadrim. But if you were paying attention last week to the sources that were brought, there is a halacha that says that if you only have enough oil for either you to light every night the way you're supposed to, you have enough oil for 44, for, for whatever, for, uh, for 36 candles, but your friend has no oil, you compromise your mahadrin to fulfill the basic mitzvah to share your oil with him. That's a unique thing only in Hanukkah, in my opinion, because of the other halacha we, re- we read, that a person has to even go begging for oil for Hanukkah, and therefore we also, we also have different ways of fulfilling the mitzvah, where sometimes we compromise, as long as we're fulfilling the basic mitzvah, to enable another Jew because of, again, it's a special din in Hanukkah, Pirsume Nisa. And now, maybe let's talk for a minute, we don't have that source in here explicitly, but, of course, the famous question, there's uh, there are two. One is a very famous question, and the other is not such a famous question, but it's a corollary. So everybody has heard the question of the Beis Yosef. They had enough oil for one night. And miraculously, it lasted for eight nights. I'm not going to go into the technicalities of how they did that, but the question is obvious. So how many days of miracle were there? There were seven days of miracle. So why are we celebrating eight days of Hanukkah? So there's lots of technical answers. The real fundamental answer, the most compelling answer, is that one of those eight days that we're celebrating, we're celebrating the miracle of nature. That the oil burning miraculously, that was a a supernatural miracle. But guess what? If you understand God's will through nature, you realize that nature is just as miraculous as oil burning for uh, oil burning for more days. When you drop the pen and it falls down, that was because God miraculously programmed into nature His will of how it's supposed to be. So Hanukkah is the recognition of the daily miracles that we experience and the fact that, that, that even what appears on the surface to be part of nature is also really directly the will of God. There was, so that's the, that, that's the, uh, uh, that's the famous question about, um, about why we have eight days of Hanukkah with only seven days of, of, of miracles. There was another thing. There was one other aspect of what the Greeks did. They wanted to eradicate three mitzvahs. Hopefully, you heard this also before. They eradicate. They wanted to eradicate Shabbos. They wanted to eradicate Bris Milo, and they wanted to eradicate Kiddush Hachodesh. So the first two make perfect sense. 
I mean, perfect sense in the sense why they would want to eradicate it. Okay? Shabbos is our statement of purpose in the world. That we make it, we make a statement that God created a, that God created a purposeful world, which is directly in opposition to a purposeless, purposeless world. And Brismila is our declaration that we have control over our instincts. Again, something that's completely at odds with their philosophy. But where does Kiddush HaChodesh, what, what got them so hot under the collar about Kiddush HaChodesh? Kiddush HaChodesh means, what does Kiddush HaChodesh mean? That Beit Din declares when Rosh Chodesh is. And what are the consequences of that? Is that 10 days later, if it was Tishrei, you have to fast. And if you don't, you have Kharis. And in Nisan, 15 days later, you have to eat matzah. And if they would have made Chodesh a day later, then it's 15 days after that that you eat matzah. Eating matzah is a, it's a spiritual. It's a, it brings down spiritual energy. So we have power in the laws of nature to create spiritual energy. That's completely at odds with what they're saying. Okay? So that, that's, that they, 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 they have to, they have to oppose that. If, if, if you want to have a, you know, like a, 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 um, a trio of ideas that they're opposing in Shabbos, Mila, and Kiddush, and Kiddush HaChodesh, Shabbos is our declaration of purpose. Mila is our declaration of our ability to overcome instinct. And Kiddush HaChodesh is our ability to sanctify time. Just parenthetically, in the scientific world, they understand everything. There's one thing they don't really understand. If you go, do, you know, Google what is time. And you will find that this is a very mysterious thing. Okay? That's a parenthetical point. But we have the ability to sanctify, to imbue time with sanctity. That's again, that's a connection. That's the opposite of Ein Lachem Chelek Be'elokei Yisrael. It's exactly the opposite of our disconnect from God. Again, don't think that the Greeks opposed God. They just said there's no connection. We only work, operate in the physical world. So let's see the, the, the Svasemis in the end. You, okay? I hope everybody appreciates that we also want to bring in a Hasidic source. Okay? So the Svasemis there talks about those three mitzvos. And um, uh, let's read it quickly. I'm going to read it in English. It'll go a little faster. Okay? Shab, uh, right? It is difficult to understand why they singled out sanctifying the new moon more than other com- commandments. It appears what angered them was the sanctification of holy days should be dependent on the Jewish people with them sanctifying times. And then that's what he writes, that you have no portion in the God of Israel. Okay, as he writes, well, we said there's an internal contradiction. If there's a God, why don't we have a connection? They wanted to annul the conviction that sanctity can be bestowed on human actions. That there's kedusha in physical acts. That's always a hidden dimension. So Hashem added Hanukkah through them. Dafka, you who say we have no connection, we can't sanctify physical acts. So it's similar to the sanctification of the new moon. Here he's getting very Kabbalistic. So when we do Kiddush HaChodesh, we're imputing a sanctification to time. The new moon is a time of renewal. Here's where it gets deep. So, I mean, this part isn't deep. Everybody understands the whole point of 
of of of Kiddush HaChodesh of Chodesh. It's why the Gemara says, why do Jews measure time by the moon, lunar, and the non-Jew measures time, solar? Solar, the, the solar year is a perfect replication year after year. Nothing changes. When you measure a year, one year is exactly the same as the, as another year. The days, go, they, they get longer, shorter, in a perfect cycle, perfectly repetitive. The weather cycle is the same every year. Assuming that you don't believe in global warming, or you do believe in global warming, but basically it's the same, okay? I mean, it used to be global warming, now it's climate change, because right, the, the winters got colder. Okay, but the idea is, is that there's cycles, and the cycle repeats itself over and over again. What about Chodesh, the month? Well, the word Chodesh, the word says Chadash, because every month is different. The month of Tishrei has a unique spiritual energy as well as climactic energy, and if you're paying attention now, okay, and if you would be in London, it would be even worse that the sun sets before 4 o'clock, okay? Yeah, but then if you uh, fast forward to July, so then the sun rises before 4 o'clock and doesn't set until 10.30. Every month is different. Every month is unique. So the new moon tells us that every time the moon starts, it grows, 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 and then it wanes, and it looks like it disappears, and then what happens? The new moon starts over again. Renewal. Chiddush. That's what the, that's what the Svasemis is pointing out here. The new moon is a time of renewal. But setting the specific time for this renewal depends on the Jewish people. We declare when this renewal happens. Kiddush HaChodesh. And now the power of... So that's the power of renewal where uh, we, we'll, the Svasemis is alluding to the fact that this is renewal of illumination. We're renewing and it's going to grow and grow and grow because we are now renewing the illumination of the month. But what about renewal in darkness? Hanukkah was a time of darkness. It's at the end. And again, we're, we, we've had periods in our history where it looks very dark. It looks like it's over. And it doesn't look like anything is going to, going to come back. Says the, says the Svasemis, that's the power of renewal in times of darkness, which is at the end of the month. You see, we talk about renewal at the beginning of the month. That's wonderful. You get a fresh start. I had a friend always who said, you know your, your, your Zman is not going very well when on the second week of the Zman, you say to yourself, next Zman's going to be different. <laughs> okay? We always renew at the beginning. What about at the end? So says the Sfas MS that there's a darkness at the end of the month. Wait, when is Hanukkah? At the end of the month. Hanukkah is at the absolute darkest time of the year. It's the days are the shortest, the nights are the longest, and it's at the very end of the month. The mood is going to be disappearing during Hanukkah. Says the Sfas MS there's an alignment between the new moon, which is renewal, where in the time of illumination, and Hanukkah. The new moon is the beginning of renewal. Hanukkah represents the conclusion of renewal. That we've always got to be in a cycle of renewal. And it's going to be when it looks like it's at the end. That's not... The, you can renew at the end too. When things are very bad, you have to renew. You have to be more stark. Okay? What, what do we have to make a serial this morning? you got to steig when it's dark. Okay? So th- this is 
I mean, this, this is really... So now we're dealing here with a fundamental conflict about how we look at the physical world, how we look at nature. Chachma bagoyim tamin, the non-Jewish world gives us tremendous wisdom. That's enlightenment. But if we don't use it properly, if we don't understand what's below the surface, if all we look at is the surface, then we're back into the Mesila Sisharim's darkness. And again, and we couldn't have imagined how concrete we're going to see the Mesil Sisharim's darkness, where we're not running into the lamp pole anymore. We're giving Yashuk, we're giving thank, we're giving Boker Tov to the lamppost. We're not saying, oh, I didn't see the evil. We're saying that, oh, that evil is good. And that good is, that's the Mesil Sisharim's darkness. That's when you look at things on the surface. That when you don't realize, there's a, no, there's a hidden dimension. And every, per, every one of us has a hidden dimension. We too much look at ourselves on the surface. And we don't understand our uniqueness is below the surface. You can't measure your reality. You can't measure your uniqueness. That's why Hanukkah, mitzvah chaviva ma'od. Because it's ner ishu beso, it's focusing on the home, it's focusing on the individuality, it's focusing on the uniqueness, and all of that is below the surface. We always have to remember that the true Judaism always looks what's below the surface. Hanukkah Sameach.